audience online with our live stream, or perhaps they're watching later, the recording is kept online. A uh, special shout out to my wife who's uh, away from home. Uh, love you and can't wait for you to come back. Uh, may the Lord bless you and keep you. And each one who's uh, worshiping with us from home. I'll be reading God's word in 1 Samuel 22, beginning in verse 6 through the end of the chapter. We're resuming where we left off three or four weeks ago. David, who's been anointed to be king, is kind of on the run because Saul is still clinging to the throne. Saul's in rebellion to the Lord. And David's uh, had some wanderings and he's kind of recovered himself and he's waiting to see what God will do. And as this chapter ends, we see Saul lashing out. We see his evil heart fully displayed. And yet the chapter ends with a word of hope. Let's give ourselves to the hearing of God's word. Now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree in the height with his spear in his hand. And all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant uh, against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then answered Dog the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitab, and he inquired of the Lord for him. And gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitab, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Hear now, son of Ahitab. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me? You and the son of Jesse, and that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among your servants is so faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, you turn and strike the priests. And Doeg, the Edomite, turned and struck down the priests. And he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword, both man and woman. 
child, an infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. Thus far we read in God's good and perfect word. May he bless all who hear it, believe it, and obey it. Amen. Conspiracy theories. I put that in the sermon title. And I'm not trying to be provocative or political. But there may be applications. Let, let me explain what I mean by conspiracy theories. Uh, and, I'll, and I'll start with a, a particular one from my youth, which was a long time ago, if you remember the 70s or if you've heard about them. There was a book, it was actually published in 1968 by Eric Von Daniken. You probably could see the cover in your eyes when I tell you the name of the book. Chariots of the Gods. Anybody remember this old book? This guy had this theory that uh, many of the technology in the ancient world, ancient civilizations were helped by aliens who came and helped them build the pyramids or came and helped them build a canal or an aqueduct. Aliens who appeared like astronauts. And that's why we have some odd pictures and some ancient art. That was his theory. Chariots of the Gods. And of course, as an impressionable teenager back in the 70s, this book is making its way around all my friends. And what do you think? We all believe in aliens, right? Well, maybe they came and they needed something and they helped civilization. Who can prove or disprove such a conspiracy theory? It was popular for a season, gave rise to other things. And you know what? It didn't really affect my life. Probably doesn't affect your life. We go on. The definition of a conspiracy theory is that it usually denies the consensus of what's true, the popular perception of reality. Uh, a conspiracy theory cannot usually be proven by historical or scientific method. And conspiracy theories are not to be confused with verifiable, researchable conspiracies. There are conspiracies. Psalm 2 talks about conspiracies of the sinful against the Lord Jesus Christ. There are conspiracies. And if they can be proven, so be it. Conspiracies are not always false. But their validity depends upon evidence, just as in any theory. So let's be careful not to throw out all conspiracy theories and, and people who ask questions. And let's be careful not to uh, nurture conspiracy theories where there is no evidence. Well, here we have Saul. In the Old Testament, he sees everything from the perspective of his suspicions. And we see where that leads. We're going to look at Saul and his rebellion from the Lord. And David only appears at the very end. We will get to him. And the aim here isn't just to dump on Saul and say, boy, isn't he bad? Let's see how bad he is. I'm glad we're not him. But to see in Saul 
the capabilities of sin. Far too many people, far too many Christians underestimate sin. Underestimate our own heart's capacity for waywardness. Whether it was Saul or David who sinned. Here it's Saul and it's really bad. So let's take note, let's look, and let's also examine our own hearts. First, we're going to look at Saul's broken thinking and the alienation that it um, produces. Alienation. Do we know what that word means? You're, you're no longer friends because of something you think, or, or everybody's perceived as your enemy, and you're all alone in your thoughts. It's interesting that Saul is no longer in Jerusalem. Where is he? What city is he in? He's in Gibeah, sitting under a tree. And he's surrounded by whom? Well, not by the courtesans in Jerusalem or the regular merchants and Pharisees and leaders in Jerusalem, but he is surrounded by his own tribe. He's hanging with the Benjamites. Benjaminites. Can't leave off a syllable there. Benjamite is... Anyways, he's with his own people, the tribe of Benjamin. You remember, that's where Saul is from. So he's already displaying this alienation and his broken thinking is evident from the get-go. What's the first thing we really see about him? He's sitting here and uh, I've got to turn the right page. He is sitting under the tree with his spear nearby. No, it's in his hand. That's a clue. When you look at narrative accounts in the scripture and it tells you the setting uh, they're not talking about the weather and other things, so they're giving you clues about what's important and pertinent, typically. Why would the king, with all his guards around, why would he need his spear close by? We've seen him use it in the past, mostly for throwing at David. But didn't he also try to throw it at Jonathan? And it's not just nearby, it's in his hand. He's clutching his spear. And this, to me, in the caption, in parentheses, say, Behold the paranoia of the king. You see, as Mary Jane Evans in her commentary points out, the spear was a weapon, but it also stood as a symbol of kingship. For Saul, perhaps, she says, it had become a superstitious talisman. Now, when you're reading and you hear a word you don't know, what should you do? You should look it up. Or ask mom and dad, and then they'll look it up if they don't know it. What is a talisman? We might say rabbit's foot in our culture, and then you know what it means. It's that object uh, that is believed to have magical powers or bring good luck. And I think she's on the right track, this commentator, when, when Saul is clinging to his spear. He might need it. And this spear is, is going to help me uh, oppose my enemies. How easy it is when we're away from the Lord that we cling to our own rabbit's feet. We find uh, something that brings us a little bit of comfort. Maybe it's what our culture loves to bring up, comfort food. The world is a little better when I can have control over what I'm going to eat. I'm going to eat this and I might eat the whole thing. We're, we're, we're trying to bring order and comfort to ourselves through our own choosing. With Saul, it's much worse. And we see it as he clutches his spear. But his uh, twisted thinking also leads to his vile speech. What he says here is pretty nasty stuff. I don't know if you picked it up the first time. We'll read it again in a second. 
Um, it's this royal pity party. We know what a pity party is. And remember, he's speaking to his own people, but he's speaking to them as henchmen who could turn on him. That's how deep the paranoia runs. He's not even sure he can trust his friends, his family. You perhaps have had that moment where someone you know and love all of a sudden says something. What? When did you start thinking about that? It can become very unsettling. Let's see what Saul does as he modifies reality with all his suspicions. His speech again begins here in verse 7. And he's speaking again to his servants and the Benjamites. Here now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Like I have. To be related to the king means you get lots of payouts. You're my friends. You're my buddies. I paid you. Is David going to do that for you? Will he make you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? You guys in the army, I gave you your positions. You got to stay loyal to me. All of you who have conspired against me? And then he goes on. We'll read the rest. No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. You guys don't tell me anything. I got to figure it out by myself. Well, let's just pause. If Saul has heard about the relationship of Jonathan and David, someone has told him. He's just upset that he didn't know more. He didn't know sooner. So he's not even speaking accurately. His suspicions have taken over. The old Scottish preacher William Blakely says about this particular speech, it would have been difficult for any other man to condense so much that was vile in spirit into the dimensions of a little speech like this. It begins with a base appeal to the covetousness of his kinfolk. He appeals to their greed. It accuses them of conspiring against him and treason. It even accuses the noble Jonathan of treachery when Jonathan was so hard-pressed to believe anything bad about Saul. Do you remember David had to convince him? Jonathan loved his father and would serve his father well all his days. You see, Saul here jumps to conclusions. Wrong thinking, broken thinking, suspicions and, and conspiracy theories and isolation and alienation can lead to this vile speech that pours out and even upon those that are near you, those that you love. And in Saul, it jumps to conclusions and accusations. Why did he think Jonathan had turned against him? Because he heard that Jonathan was friends with David. It was guilt by association. The fact that they have a friendship, it must mean that he betrayed me too. Saul is interpreting the reality according to his conspiracy theory, according to his suspicions. Jonathan had not provoked David. Jonathan was not in league to dethrone Saul. Saul's wrong. This is the way sin works. When you begin to harbor it, when you're away from the Lord, when you've drifted. Have we turned our thoughts in this direction? Doesn't the New Testament tell us often how we are to look at one another, love one another, and then it says deeply from the heart. 
Hold one another in high esteem. Don't think more highly of yourself. Christians, things are different among us. Humbled as we are by our gracious Savior, that he would accept us and that he does it for others and we accept them. How precious is Christian fellowship. How precious is the Spirit of God who gives us wisdom and insight. How humble we ought to be. How clearly we ought to see ourselves and those around us. Sin messes with that harmony. And we see it in Saul. He's ranting and raving. The worst is about to happen. There's more bad stuff coming. But this is a a clear illustration of sin. And we see it unfold even as he brings in the priests. So let's look secondly at the broken thinking and the angry actions. This middle section of the passage. Dog the Edomite uh, steps forward and gives a testimony. Hey, I saw somebody who was helping David too. And let me just pause because the narration tells us three times that this fellow, you can probably say his name simply as Dog as opposed to Doeg, probably has two syllables in the original. Uh, He's an Edomite. He is not an Israelite. He's not one of the covenant children of God. And the Edomites, they, they oppose God's people when they came out in the Exodus. They're going to be a fly in the ointment when Jerusalem is besieged later on in a few hundred years. They're, they're not the good people. So he's under suspicion because of this historical reality. And he probably has a mixed agenda. He speaks up. And what is his contribution to Saul's thinking? He starts spinning the facts. Yeah, I saw David. He was at Nob and he talked to the priests. Okay, that's true. And he got some provisions there and a sword. That's true. But what's the part that isn't true? Because we read the story earlier in the book. When David went, he did not inquire of the Lord. In other words, he didn't press the priest at Nob to to pray or give him divine guidance or divine blessing. David did not engage Ahimelech to his side. So there's a second lie. He didn't conspire against Saul saying, hey, join me in this cause. And since David lied as to protect Ahimelech, to keep him uh, separate from his own uh, being on the run. But Doeg begins by spinning the facts. He inquired of the Lord for him. No, not that we know of. There's no evidence of that. There's no reference to Ahimelech's consulting the Lord. Doeg may be lying here. And and why would that be a big deal if you ask somebody to pray for you? Well, it was more than that. The priests in the Old Testament, these prophets who served the Lord, would be the ones to speak authoritatively and give direction and guidance and blessing Typically for battle, typically for national issues and troubles, right? Should we go up against the Philistines? Should we stay? Should we fight? Should we go? They would inquire of the Lord. So when Doeg spins the truth in this direction, it's a little gasoline on the conspiracy theory. Because Doeg has just heard Saul rant about David and his military opposition. David's lying in wait for me. Yeah, he, he consulted. He, he gave his blessing to David's military rebellion as part of the innuendo here. That's part of the uh, inflammatory nature of Doeg's words. 
You have to be careful when your thinking is broken and you're, you're toying with a conspiracy idea that you don't let someone spin you with something that's not true. We all the more in troubled times need to be listening for the truth and be discerning. The angry actions continue as Abimelech comes and he bears a testimony. What do we make of Abimelech's testimony? He says, yeah, I, I was with David. David's a great servant. He's maybe a little naive of what's transpired between David and Saul, right? He doesn't know how much Saul really hates him. So here comes Ahimelech speaking kindly about David. Oh, yeah, he's a great guy. He's one of your best people, isn't he? Isn't he? Whether it's naivete or he's simply trying to advocate for the Lord's anointed, uh, his words are, are kind. Here I am, my Lord. Um, He's charged with conspiracy. Ahimelech answers the king, verse 14. Uh, Who's so faithful as David? He's a great guy. And then he says in verse 15, is today the first time that I've inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. He says in general, yeah, I've inquired on behalf of you and David in the past. That's what I do. But don't impute to me any of this conspiracy. I don't know what you're talking about. He gives his testimony. So we have Doeg testimony and Ahimelech's testimony. And Ahimelech is surrounded by all the priests who were dragged up from Nob to this meeting. But Saul ignores the evidence. One commentator says Saul was incapable of hearing anything that conflicted with his own predetermined conclusion. It's a common temptation to jump to the conclusions about guilt and ignore evidence that conflicts with those conclusions. I uh, felt a little guilty when I heard that because sometimes I jump to conclusions. And just a few days ago when my keys weren't on the hook in the front hall closet, my car keys, the church keys, I go, okay. They're not where I put them, so who took them? Who took them? Who made off with them? And you know, when I asked my wife, I said, have you seen my keys? No, you sound like you're accusing me. No, I just, they're gone. And of course, I didn't move them. I almost always put them there. I can reach that hook with my eyes closed. I just put them right on that hook. Well, it turns out uh, when I was leaving the office on Friday, uh, visitors were right there. And in my packing my briefcase and walking out the door, I didn't grab my keys. And I was getting a ride, so I didn't need my keys. So my keys were on my desk here at the church. And I had to apologize. I jumped to a conclusion because I assumed I couldn't be wrong. I, and you know, if you know me, I'm already a little paranoid about my keys. So. But when you're confronted with the evidence, oh, my keys are in the office. Who put them there? I had to, I had to give in to the evidence, the reality. My friends, we, we should test what we hear Some evidence is not always easy to believe. It's not reliable. And sometimes we don't have enough evidence. But when we have clear evidence, we should be willing to adjust our conclusions. You see, sin muddles our thinking. Saul's an example of that. Even when Ahimelech gives this great testimony, there's no other evidence against Ahimelech. Saul doesn't follow up with a cross-examination. No, what does Saul do? He pronounces a death sentence. 
Okay, Ahimelech, you're going to die. Who's going to do it? Come on, volunteer. This horrible harming of others. The slaughter of the priests and then of the villagers that followed because of the angry, broken thinking of Saul. Those priests of God were gathered there in the presence of the king of Israel and he orders their death. His wicked temper had arisen and he's not just throwing a spear. He's clutching it, but he's telling someone else to kill the priests. Notice that none of the Israelites will do it. It's one thing to indulge a paranoid king. It's another thing to oppose the Lord God, Jehovah. None of those servants would step forward. Even with menacing Saul looking at them with his spear, they would not fight against the Lord. But Doeg, he has no qualms. He's a cold-blooded murderer. It's a horrible scene. It's hard to imagine. And then when he goes back to the village of Nob, I don't know if he's on some kind of violent high, he kills the women and children back at the village to eradicate all the families of the priests. And there's a horrible irony here, isn't there? Some of you Bible students know why Saul was rejected by being king, right? I think it was back in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Why did God say to Saul, you're done? I'm going to get a new king. Because Saul would not obey the Lord and destroy the Lord's enemies. The Lord gave him a pretty serious task with the Amalekites. Kill them all. Don't take their plunder, just do this. Their time has come and Saul would not do it. That harem Hebrew word is used here for the complete killing of these innocents at the hand of Saul. But Saul, in his own rebellion, would not do that at the Lord's explicit command. And it would appear that Saul's priest, the the guy who was of the prophets and the priests that was with Saul, Ahijah, is likely killed during this purge as well because he's no longer mentioned in the rest of the book. In Saul's angry, violent, twisted thinking and these horrible actions in this decree, he's wiped out those that were there to help. Scottish preacher William Blake, he said, had Saul never committed any other crime, this would have been enough to separate him from the Lord forever. Do we see how dangerous sin is? There's more to learn. We'll, we'll have a few words in the closing. But let's turn to the, uh, the third part of this passage. Because there's this little scene at the end that gives us hope. And really in the text, the way it's arranged by the inspired author, if you look at it physically, uh, there's a substantial amount of things to be said here at the close of this horrible scene. Verse 20. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitab, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. Somebody escaped, comes to tell David. And he tells David that all the prophets, all the priests have been wiped out. We need to do some clear thinking about this and see that even in this horrible event, the will of God was moving forward. 
And this may be difficult to hear, but hear me out. Because this is part of the positive scene here. There had been a prophecy against Eli, the original priest, at the beginning of this book. Because Eli had sons that he would not control. That were abusing people. And making a sham of their service for the Lord. And and God had had enough. And he told Eli in 1 Samuel 2 verse 31. Behold the days are coming. This is the Lord to his servant Eli. When I will cut off your strength. And the strength of your father's house. So that there will not be an old man in your house. God's judgment against Eli and that family of servants was that they would be cut off and out of service. That was 40 or 50 years ago. But now in the death of all these prophets and priests, by the hand of an evildoer, God's judgment had come to pass. It's difficult to see how the sovereignty of God is sometimes executed in this world, even at the hands of evil men. Read Habakkuk if you want to see how God was going to judge his people. The prophet says, boy, things are bad, Lord. We need to revive the work. He says, well, I'm going to send people to take you captive and destroy Jerusalem. I'm going to execute my will even at the hands of evil men. And I will orchestrate that through captivity and then restoration from Babylon, bringing back a remnant. My plan will go forward and my holiness will be defended So God's word is fulfilled against Eli from 1 Samuel 2 to 1 Samuel 22. It's in the background. And indeed, when the Old Testament was translated into Greek, we call that the Septuagint. When the Jews of Jesus' day were understanding this story. And they saw this phrase in the Lord's mouth, when I will cut off your strength. They understood the cutting off was by the sword. So the Greek Septuagint translates the Hebrew there, by the sword. I will cut off by the sword your strength. They connected the fulfillment with the prophecy very clearly. What do we make of this? What what am I trying to say? That God's word is fulfilled even when evil men do their worst. Dale Ralph Davis says... Even in opposing God's kingdom, God's enemies only bring to pass God's word. And we forget that. Especially in days of trouble and and preponderance. What's going on in the world? The world is so evil. What's going on? I can tell you this. Hear me. The word of God will never fail to come to pass. God's plans will come to pass. God is not thwarted by the ascendancy of evil in this world or by violent actions against innocent people of God. If you want to see that most clearly, look at Acts chapter 2 verse 23. When Peter speaks in the New Testament, Jesus had been crucified, dead and buried. On the third day he rose and after 40 days he ascended into heaven. And on the day of Pentecost, Peter's preaching. (coughs) And Peter says to the people of Jerusalem in verse 23, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The sovereign plan of God marches forward 
And it takes into account and even uses the evil, guilty deeds of men. My, my plans can get thwarted. When you're in a hurry, there's road construction. Not God's plans. Never. Ever. Even in the greatest evil perpetuated on this planet. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ. God's plan was moving forward. It's this knowledge that God's word will be fulfilled. That should... Um, how does Dale Ralph Davis, he says, it puts steel into Christian endurance. If we know that as men oppose God and his people, they will only fulfill God's word, it doesn't take away sorrow or grief or suffering, but it gives us a certain secret certainty of victory. There was much weeping in Nob. A whole village of Israelites wiped out. Lord, why? Hundreds of years later, there would be Rachel weeping in Bethlehem as a generation of babies were killed. Why? God is still on His throne. God's Word will come to pass. And God, in His ways, will win the victory I underlined this, what Dale Ralph Davis said. There is no way Yahweh's enemies can gain the edge. He has them completely outclassed. Amen. We need to remember that. So, as the clear thinking begins, we see that one has survived to tell David about this account. And he comes to David... His escape, by the way, is a sign that God always preserves his people in the midst of destruction. But how does David respond in verse 22? David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Dog the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. What is David saying? David thinks he's got a hand in this and he's guilty of that? Yes, that's what David is saying. And yes, David did have a hand in it. You see, David is in a sinless Old Testament figure. He is human and at times very sinful. But he casts himself on the mercy of God. Here, David confesses. One who has a heart for God, when your sin is made known, you confess, you feel your grief. I have occasioned the death of all these priests. I went there. I, I, I was there. I'm the reason they're dead. And he was lying when he was there. But he confesses. Isn't it interesting to put King Saul and David uh, before us here? When Saul hears the, the message of what's happened, he gets angry and he says, you shall surely die. David hears what has happened and he confesses his role in it. And then offers the one survivor safekeeping. Do you see that? God's kind provision here. Thirdly, God's servant provides safekeeping. 
Where do we go? To whom shall I flee? I like what the disciples said to Jesus when he said, are you guys leaving? They said, Lord, who else has the words of life? Where does Abiathar flee? The very king is out to kill you. Well, he's not really the king, is he? Many knew David was a God-fearing man and anointed to be king. The word was spreading and the tide would soon turn. Abiathar goes to David because he is God's servant. And there is provision for him. What do we take away from this passage? Let me focus on three things as we kind of wrap up and summarize and and try to equip ourselves from the word of God for faithful living today. These three closing words all begin with the letter C. First, caution. There's caution here because sin is horrible and your sin can greatly affect others. I think that's something we often overlook. You know, when you're going to sin, when you're going to lie or cheat or steal and try to tweak a situation because of your own conniving, you don't often think that it's a domino effect and somebody else is going to get hurt, do we? That's the way we think. We think, I can sin because we've isolated ourselves. Because sin is that little bit of rebellion of not abiding by the laws of God, not being accountable to the God of heaven. So... Realize here, be cautioned. Your sin can often affect others and it can often affect them greatly. It can often affect them greatly. William Blakey said sin, and he's writing in the 1800s and he uses the word network. I kind of chuckled. What did the word mean before we had the internet? Network, meaning uh, there are connections, right? Right? He said this, sin is like a network, the ramifications of which go out on the right and on the left. When we break God's law, we cannot tell what the consequences to others may be. David was lying to get some bread and some help when he was at that little village. I'm just not going to tell this guy the truth. I'm going to lie. And what did it cost? Your little sin, it's just a little sin. What might it cost? It might cost someone their life. That is so sobering. You lie to a spouse, you lie to a parent, you lie to a child, you lie to your boss. You sin in some other way. Ah, it's years ago. May we cast ourselves on the mercy of God. Father, have mercy upon us. Let me not trifle with sin. That's got to be part of our resolve. Second C word is clarity. Clarity. How do we go? Where do we go? What do we do? How do I know my own heart? Well, clarity, clear clear thinking is found in God's word and from godly spiritual counselors. Early on, David had Samuel. How did David know he was the Lord's anointed? The Lord made it known to him explicitly by God's word through his prophet Samuel. Samuel later confirmed that. 
It was Samuel who also talked to Saul, but Saul wasn't buying it. Saul did not believe and heed the word of God. David does. At some point in his life, David would write Psalm 19. I don't know if you have a favorite psalm or not. Um, I would recommend Psalm 19. It's not too long. It's very sweet and helpful. If you don't have a favorite psalm, maybe it can be Psalm 19 for you today. It starts out, the first half of the psalm is talking about how the created world displays the glory of God. That's general revelation. God makes himself known. And then the second half of Psalm 19 talks about God's word. And in the midst of that second part of the psalm, in in Psalm 19, verse 12, David begins asking a question. You know, he's doing this as he's singing and praising the Lord. And then he sees the answer. He said, who can discern his errors? In other words, he's asking for clarity of thought. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgressions. And perhaps you know the closing verse of Psalm 19. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Where is clear thinking found? Where are we safe in our thinking and in our belief and then our actions so we don't go astray or become alienated or twisted in our thinking? You start with God's word. Daily look into the the, the light of God's word. Let it shine upon you and hear what God has to say. May it show you your sin and your faults. As we've seen today, the way a sinful heart is prone to behave. And may we even follow David in his prayer about our own heart. Lord, let my thinking and my words and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. For you are God. And you are my God. Clarity is found in scriptures. Other Christians will tell you that. Don't be isolated. Don't be alienated. Don't be broken in your thinking. The final closing word begins with the letter C. Confidence. I urge you to be confident and trusting in the Lord as we move ahead. Even guarding ourselves from sin and walking in the light of God's word. Confidence comes from God's provision. God's ultimate provision is the Lord Jesus Christ. Abiathar fled to David. David was God's servant in that day. David was the savior, so to speak, of that day. And King David would become the type, the prototype of the Messiah that would come from the line of David. So just as those seeking safety fled to King David, we flee to King David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as in the Old Testament, Isaac asked Abraham, Father, where is the sacrifice? As Isaac himself was bound on top of the mountain, Abraham said, God will provide the lamb. God will provide. Have confidence that God will provide. He has provided the Lord Jesus Christ. I love what Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 4. These words that should ring true. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoptions as sons. 
Jesus is God's provision for us in every way. Hebrews goes on to talk about how he came and took on flesh and blood so that he could lay that down and free us from the fear of death. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Flee to Jesus. Hear the words of Jesus from Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. God's provision of a savior, a shepherd, a king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word strips bare our pretenses and shows us where our thinking may go astray. It shows us the proclivities of human rebels, how easily we concoct and adjust reality to fit our theories. Father, we thank you that your word sheds light. Your word tells us what's true and timelessly true. May we take in the evidence of your word. May your spirit give us understanding. May we repent and may we believe. May we confess that Jesus is Lord and our trust is in him your provision for us. We thank you that there is both sobering words and that there are good news from your word today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.